I don't chatter. I don't. Know. You don't chatter. Yeah, Marcel. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Marcel. <laughs> All right. Uh, welcome to Center Ed Teaching. Last week we talked about the Every Student Succeeds Act and how that impacts teachers. So today we want to talk about high stakes testing and the way that that impacts students. So this is actually really exciting, and as usual, I'm joined by Roberta and Brian. Hello. Hey, y'all. Um, but today is even better because we have the smartest person in all of CPET joining us today, Marcel Mentor. Wow, that's a lot of pressure. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. It's like she's so wise, Mentor is actually in her name. Yeah, there you go. Um, and so then when you have to add the doctor, the like doctor mentor, it's like super meta. That's right. <laughs> um, so Marcel, since this is your first time, can you introduce yourself and just tell our listeners a little bit about your involvement in education and your role here at CPET? Sure. Um, so I'm one of the full-time staff members at CPET and I come to CPET um, via 15 years of high school teaching in my um, native South Africa um, and then came to the U.S. in 2005 where I started working for a non-profit um, where I was the, the, um, the head of an after-school program for kids and community involvement and, and civic engagement and that took me back into the schools and so right. being in schools and observing and seeing what teachers were doing and how they were challenged got me thinking to coming back um, into doing my PhD and working specifically with teacher education and professional development. And that's what I did for the last nine years. Um, graduated out of my program last year with my PhD. Um, and thank you. Um, continue to work um, in schools in New York City. Um, so I've been with CPET for, I want to say, seven years now. Um, mm. And I do a whole range of, of different professional development um, things. Um, but I'm very interested in, in critical race theory, and so a lot of what I do, I mean, it's hard not to be. I was born in apartheid South Africa, and so um, everything that I look through is through the through the lens of race and, and culture and how people balance themselves within these spaces and manage to be successful or unsuccessful. Um, and so a lot of that looks at how I, I look at how teachers are challenged, especially in New York City in the urban area, and then also how students are challenged by... The, the kinds of teaching that they receive. Yeah, well, thanks for being here with us today. I know your perspective is going to be really important um, for this conversation. So the first thing that we want to talk about with standardized testing is kind of a brief history to understand how this all came together. And so this starts in the early 20th century um, when IQ tests first become used and they're popularized um, in the American Army for determining a soldier's fitness for service and what roles different soldiers can play based on their quote-unquote intelligence. Um, so after the popularity that was gained during the war, the IQ tests start to become um, involved in more facets of American life. So in part, these tests were used for immigrants um, who came to the U.S., to determine whether or not they were intelligent enough to be let in. In part, this was a response that you had greater immigration from Eastern European countries and other countries that Americans thought were lesser than, quote-unquote, traditional Americans. So literally, if you can picture it, an immigrant would come over um, to Ellis Island. They would be administered um, an intelligence quotient test, right, an IQ test, and then be told whether or not they could enter the country. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it should be noted that 
Some of these immigrants did not speak English coming over, but the test was given in English with no consideration of the native tongue of the immigrant. Nor, if um, someone actually spoke English, was there consideration that the test was often written in American vernacular and about American culture. So if you didn't live here, you still might struggle on those tests. At the same time, you have progressive educators that are struggling to try to make schools, quote-unquote, more efficient. And so one way they do that is, oh, we can track students by what career path best suits them. Maybe they're going to go to college. Maybe they're going to be a trade worker. Maybe they'll just be a manual labor. And the way that they tracked those students was using these IQ tests. What they started to see over time but didn't pay much attention to is that really these IQ tests became stratifiers by socioeconomic status, race, and ethnicity. So as time goes on, these tests continue to get more and more validity, and then in 1957 you have the launch of Sputnik, and you have this like subsequent global fight for intellectual supremacy in schools. And so you have American legislators that want some way to track the quality of American schools um, so that they can compete globally. At the same time, as we talked about last week, you have the um, Elementary Secondary Education Act, which also brings all kinds of federal money into public schools. And so now you have these lawmakers, hey, we're spending all this money. What's the accountability? What's the actual effect this money is having? Um, is equality actually being bridged? And so in this contemporary moment, we kind of sit at the awkward juxtaposition of these two histories, this history of testing being used to differentiate people, possibly for nefarious means, and then testing as an accountability measure to ensure um, quality of schools and equality. So after that kind of long-winded history here, um, thinking about tests in the contemporary context, how does this help students? I know, Brian, you have some thoughts on how, at least theoretically, these tests can help students. Yeah, theoretically, um, a standardized test uh, is an opportunity for a student from a traditionally underserved or traditionally, uh, or it, from a background where students have traditionally fewer opportunities to succeed, um, can sort of bootstrap themselves up to admission to a university or um, uh, admission to um, other academic programs uh, that are generally the province of the, the elite. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the idea being that... Um, a standardized test um, ought to be um, a, a, like a like a foot race, right? Just whoever gets the lowest time, mm-hmm. regardless of their their background, regardless of the their race, regardless of their their gender, their sexuality, all those uh, competing intersectional or overlapping intersectional factors, um, ought to be able to then um, be recognized as best or mm-hmm. very very good, and therefore reap the rewards. Um, it like in a in in a um, if if one believes in meritocracy, mm-hmm. um, and I, I put a big if on that, but if one believes in meritocracy, the meritocratic argument is that everybody takes the same test and mm-hmm. we skim the cream off the top. Mm-hmm. Um, now, okay. in practice, it doesn't always or it doesn't usually work out that yeah. way. I should say. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, but Roberta, I mean, you've read some scholarship that has kind of interesting at least a theory about who this helps maybe in a different way. Can you speak to that? Well, I think that we're trying to, you know, do our best to look at both sides of the coin here and say, mm-hmm. oh, how does it help people? How does that hurt people? But, um, yeah, James Moffat is a 
literary theorist, and in his book called uh, Detecting Growth in Language, he he says this. He says, external testing is no more necessary for learning in school than for learning out of school, and it does not benefit those in the classroom who can better assess that in other ways. He says, standardized tests exist for people outside the classroom, for administrators and the public. All they do is compare one student or school or school system with another, and this only serves to create mischief. Uh, he goes on to say uh, that the most telling fact is that even students who once scored high and got high grades, say, in math or science, remember too little to apply them later when they really need them. Mm -hmm. And that standardized tests don't really help anybody at all. They just help the government. They help policymakers. They help mm -hmm. outsiders mm -hmm. compare and pit people against each other uh, and call it uh, evaluation, call it you know monitoring. But it doesn't really help anybody. And then he goes on for the rest of the book to say all sorts of ways that you can assess uh, that are actually meaningful. Um, his final statement is that national assessments exist to embarrass schools mm. into improvement by comparing scores. Mm. This assumption, this assumes that dereliction is the problem and competition is the answer. Mm. So strong words from James Moffat there. Yeah, and I mean, just to tie that to a contemporary context before we go into the ways that this hurts students, that's a lot of people like um, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos who are arguing for school choice. That's the line of thinking that they're making is, hey, we have these tests to show what schools aren't performing. That gives parents the power to say, I'm not going to send my student to that school. I'm going to send it to another school. Of course, there's a lot of cultural, geographical factors that that completely discounts, but I think that's maybe helpful for people to think about in a contemporary context. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, oh, and ahead. I think that one of the things that all of these things assume, all of these points of view assume, whether you think that it's helping people, if you think that it's helping people, what you assume is that the test is fair yeah. and valid mm -hmm. and reliable and that everyone has an equal opportunity that's towards right. it. And that's the only way that the test is able to really help and or measure people because, right, it's only able to help people if it's measuring people and therefore giving, you know, supposed like credit where credit's due. Mm -hmm. But if the test, if we cannot assume that the test necessarily is a fair and impartial measure, uh, then we're left with a lot of, conflicting and problematic information. Yeah, and I think that kind of gets into some points you wanted to make, Marcel, about how these standardized tests actually hurt students. Sure. So I see a lot of, of um, test prep in the schools that I work with, and one of the, the biggest dilemma for me is dealing with kids who are so stressed out with having to take the test who who have taken the test once before, and so they're in remedial classes or they're in special seminars the next year so that they get a chance to improve their scores or improve mm -hmm. their test-taking ability. And it's become so much a part of not actually being focused on the actual content of the test or being able to understand work that is imparted to them, mm -hmm. but being able to deal with test-taking strategies. And if you're not good at the test-taking, taking strategies then your levels of stress go up and you're in a special group and in a special class and so you get labeled as the kids who are slower and the kids who didn't understand 
or the kid who is a senior waiting for his third time to take the test so that he can pass out of out of high school and mm-hmm. hopefully get into college. And so all the levels of stress that happen there, kids are complaining consistently about headaches or they don't come to take the test because their stomachs are upset or they have to go to the nurse. And so like a lot of psychological stress that, that um, often manifests itself in, in, in physiological um, um Ways because the kids are so stressed by it, and teachers on the same level are also stressed about mm-hmm. getting this work done, and so there's there's a lot of psychological <laughs> stress around taking these tests, and especially if you're already at a school that is considered a deficit school or mm. a failing school, and so the administration is really crazy about like getting this done because they are measured by whatever the results right. are of this test, and so um, to Roberta's point, like what is this measurement for kids? who don't have an equal um, footing on the on the playing ground. Yeah, I want to pause for a second on a couple of things you talked about, mm-hmm. because I think, really, you were talking about really two consequences. One is kind of like psychological, mm-hmm. and that affects the culture of the school, mm-hmm. the way students mm-hmm. and teachers feel. And then also academically, um, the way they inhibit graduation right. and student success rates. So right. let's maybe parse those uh, one at a time. Brian, I know you have some thoughts about... Um, teachers being alienated like to students because of the test or this kind of cultural shift can you speak to that a little bit sure in in the work that i do in the schools here um, i'm often called upon to help teachers help their students become more successful at a test and um the tension that that often they articulate to me is that they they don't want to teach to the test as is often said Mm. um and they don't believe that um the sort of teaching that they're meant to do in order to help kids pass the test is real teaching or the sort of learning that students are meant to do is real learning um in a way it uh it 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 suggests the sort of um doing school mentality Mm -hmm. which i believe is a book by denise pope um, this idea that um, we're not here to learn so much as we're here to jump through these hoops. Mm. And that seems to me that that alienates teachers from the work that they uh, got to do, want to do in the classroom. Um, we spoke a little bit in a previous podcast about um, the idea of being called to teach. Yeah. Um, and teachers who um, are uh, psychically invested in the work that they do, and one would hope that all of them are, mm-hmm. um, but teachers who are particularly invested um, in teaching and learning um, find that teaching to the test or um, learning to the test on the part of the students just isn't the sort of work that they signed up for. It right. isn't the sort of work that they want to do. And as a result, <laughs> their morale flags. And when the teacher morale flags, then the energy drops in the classroom. Right. And ultimately, this sort of demands that are put on teachers affects students because the teachers can't come to the, the learning environment mm-hmm. in the right sort of a frame of mind in a right a healthy psychic um state yeah i think that's a really poignant articulation of kind of the way the academic and psychological intersect Mm -hmm. um to impact kids um roberta i know you have some thoughts here on how this impacts graduation rates can you add a little bit to that or speak to that yeah i want to talk about graduation rates but i also just want to echo this connection between the psychological and the academic side, Mm -hmm. if I can. Mm -hmm. But when I was doing my research for my dissertation, I talked with students, teachers, and school leaders from schools who were struggling to pass the test. And one student interview really jumps out at me. Mm -hmm. And this student, um, 19, 20 years old, had 
Ben had dropped out of school, come back to school, mm. and was trying to pass three regents in one semester so that he could graduate from high school. Mm. And he said to me that while he was in the middle of a test, he would become very overwhelmed and start mm. feeling very anxious um, mm. as he was going through trying to answer an essay question or trying to construct his, uh, his response. And so at that moment, when he started to feel really, really overwhelmed, he told me that he would ask for a pass and go to the bathroom. Mm. And when he went to the bathroom, he said he would do pull-ups and do push-ups mm. and <laughs> jumping jacks mm. in the bathroom because he needed to, A, get all of his energy and stress out, and B, he needed to do something that he knew he was good at mm. Mm. because he was starting to get so down on himself in the moment that he was feeling himself like fall into this sort of like, you'll never pass, you've always failed. And students who experience this cycles of failure, they take the test once they fail it. Now when they come to it again, they're already a failure. Yeah. So psychologically, they really have to figure out how they can overcome that that pre-identity that's already stuck to them. And, you know, good for him. He was able to find some physical ways that mm -hmm. he was able to sort of like take a break and then think through how he was going to um, be able to get himself out of that funky place. Uh, and he did graduate, so good on him. But a lot of kids don't, um, in particular, and then just kind of cycling back to to these scores. What's the impact? You know, real kids, what's the impact on these scores? So we know, you know, we mentioned in our last podcast that a lot of graduation rates connect back to test scores. And yep. in New York State specifically, it's not true nationally, but mm -hmm. in New York State specifically, kids have to pass five regents exams in order to graduate from high school. If you're not an English, uh, uh, if you're an English language learner, been in the country for less than three to five years, or have not yet tested out um, English language proficiency, mm -hmm. you can take the tests in your home language, except in English because English needs to be taken in English. Yeah. So they say. But in, in New York State, our overall graduation rate last year was 77%, which, you know, is uh, up from uh, past years. Not too bad. That means just under a quarter of our students are not graduating, but, you know, three-fourths of them are. In New York City, we're just trailing about 5% behind the state at a 72% graduation rate. But that's the aggregate, right? So if we break that down to looking at a couple subgroups, um, 68% of those graduates are girls and 67% of those graduates are boys. So 10% of our, our boys are, are graduating at a 10% less than our, um, than our girl students. Additionally, uh, we think about the breakdown of ethnicities. 82% um, of white students in the city are graduating, only 68% of black students and 66% of Latinos are graduating. Hmm. Break that down by uh, subgroups. Wait, can I just uh, add okay. one thing there oh, real quick, Roberta? Yeah. Um, because uh, I think something that we should also throw in for listeners to think about in terms of those graduation rates is that you have significantly higher incarceration of black male and Latino male students, and those who are incarceration do not count. Um, in those graduation rates. So the 66% that you listed for Latino students seemingly would be worse because those who are incarcerated are not being um, counted. So I just I want to put that out there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and then I just want to note that uh, while 78% of our special education students graduate, often they can graduate because they can get waivers right. for passing their exams. They can pass 
um, they're the lower threshold to pass because of their individual education programs. Um, but only 30% of our English language learners are graduating from high school within four years. So let's just, for a second, for that to sink in, 72% of New York City high school students graduate. 30% of our ELL students are graduating. That means that 70% of our ELL students are not graduating. Yeah, I think that that silence is you can <laughs> exactly you can feel the weight of that if you're listening. I mean, this is something that we had actually talked about before recording this podcast, but it, it is truly hard to comprehend how detrimental that is to students and their life outcomes. Um, yeah. so, so I guess going from there, you're alluding to something that I think everyone's aware of, but we haven't quite articulated. So I want to name that, and that's the standardized tests help students and hurt students, right? In the sense that one test might help one student and might hurt another student. So one way to think about this is in New York, there are selective schools and this is common um, in urban areas that are application schools that you apply to. And in New York specifically, a test is used to get into those schools. What we see happen is that the majority of students are Asian or white. Only 1% of the population at um, Stuyvesant, which is one of these schools, mm -hmm. is black. And only 2% are Hispanic, right? So there are students that are taking this test and it's helping them get in the school, but there's kind of this disproportionate of impact of who it helps and who it doesn't help. Um, and so, I don't know, I feel like that's germane to this conversation to really understand maybe why testing persists and the ways that we need to think about it when we're doing work related to equity. Well, and in particular, I think that that's where that assumption that it's a fair test, yeah. we can really start to trouble that. You know, many people would say, well, you know, everybody has a chance to pass. You just have to pass the test and it's an IQ test. So it's testing your intelligence. But these IQ tests or these, especially these early level tests mm -hmm. uh, in, in, you know, grades or ages, you know, four, five, and six, when we're testing kids to get into G&T programs or you're beginning the tracking program that's going into some of these more elite schools, those aren't necessarily based on intelligence. That's based on knowledge, prior knowledge, right. common knowledge. And what's common for one person or one family might not be common for another family. Um, my son just went through a battery of tests and they showed him a picture and they asked him, he's three years old, they showed him a picture and they asked him, what's this? What's this? And... You know, it, it, he did not know what it was. Now, he didn't talk a lot, so that might be, you know, fair. Mm -hmm. But the picture was of an old-fashioned TV set with, like, a dial and knobs and yeah. antenna. Yeah. <laughs> well, TVs don't look like that anymore. And I think that's just sort of like a, a prime example that oftentimes the tests, even going back to, I love the early, the Alpha 1s and the Alpha 2s tests that they used in those Army uh, exams, very first multiple-choice tests, even those exams are based on what is assumed to be common knowledge, what's assumed to be prior knowledge. Right. So people who have that prior knowledge have an advantage in taking the test. People who are encountering that information or those facts for the very first time have don't have a, the same level of familiarity with it. So even if they have the same cognitive skills, they're not able to negotiate the content of the test right. because they don't have any context 
for taking in the information. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see so much disproportionate mm. achievement between uh, our black and Latino communities as we see uh, in the white community. That's right. I, I want to piggyback off that a little. Um, I remember when I did high school applications for my own kids. It was mm-hmm. very interesting because they had come from an independent school system and they would we, we applied to a whole range. So we applied to public schools, to Catholic schools, to um, independent schools, and then also to these elite eight mm-hmm. schools. And for every single one of them, the test is different. For every single one of them, they're <laughs> different. So the independent schools will have multiple choice questions. Mm-hmm. They'll have a reading response, and then they'll have an essay response. The Catholic tests had some multiple choices and a reading and and comprehension respond. The elite schools was only multiple choices, and so there were no critical thinking um, around the way the tests were done, right? And so then for the for some of the public schools, some of them just had multiple choices and or um, a comprehensive. So mm-hmm. for each of the different tests, we had to prepare my kids differently, right? And so it's like, who gets access to what? Yeah. How do they know how to navigate or negotiate that particular test in front of them. And so if I think of myself, I'm an educator, so I have, I think, like to think a little bit of a, of a leg up with yeah. parents who are not educators. Like I have access to be able to, to look at prior tests. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. able to, to help prep my kid, right? But what about parents who don't have access? What about parents who don't um, have the, the, the knowledge to do that? What about parents who are immigrants and are coming into this country um, and who don't know how to navigate those skills. And so then we are surprised that at these elite eight schools that it's only 1% or 2% of kids of color at the school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then again, we talk about who has access and how level is the playing field really. Um, And so that that boggles my mind that there's there's no uniformity around what these tests look like just to get into high school. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that really adds this dimension. We talked about the validity of the test Mm -hmm. and that would seemingly indicate it's, it's not valid in any way, and the disproportionate impact um, is really felt. And so I think, Marcel, you did a nice job articulating um, how this affects on the front end. I know, Brian, you and I have had discussions about the larger tracking, essentially, that this leads um, to of students in school districts. Can you maybe speak a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So the idea that these tests uh, have the function of sorting students um, into, um, uh, supposedly sorting students into uh, um, groups according to their intelligence or their ability or their achievement, um, ultimately uh, ends up sorting students into uh, groups uh, around um, class and race. Um, more than anything else. Um, uh, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier this if you believe in uh, merit, uh, uh, meritocracy. Um, what uh, Marcel just went ahead and described is uh, while I know that her sons have a whole lot of merit going on there, she, in because of her background, was able to prepare mm-hmm. them in mm-hmm. a way that other parents weren't. So ultimately it doesn't really, we're not measuring her her kids' um, sort of innate intelligence or anything, we're measuring their level of preparation. Right. Um, and right. so, and in a, a, a place like the United States where we have this long-running um, history of systematic racism um, and the, the fact that um, for generations people have been disenfranchised and not received the education or the services that they ought to have, um, ultimately, we end up with this sorting at the school district level, and mm-hmm. then um, uh, even at the the 
at the state level or in other countries at the national level mm -hmm. where some schools are the better schools right. they are the elite schools mm -hmm. um, and um, this this notion that um, an entire school is on a track above another one mm -hmm. well let's go ahead and take all of those kids out of mm -hmm. uh, the regular system mm -hmm. and what does that do for everyone else um, uh, people are often throw around the expression the rising tide lifts all boats mm -hmm. right but in this case what we're doing is we're taking a bunch of boats <laughs> uh, away it's, or we're taking a bunch of the the lunar pull that is going to lift yeah. that tide um, and removing them uh, from the system. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and imagine the incredible pressure that that puts on a kid, mm -hmm. um, that uh, uh, if you don't pass the, the test, you can't get into the school. Um, number one, what does that say about you? Are you less? Are you right. worse? Are you mm -hmm. dumb? Right. Um, and then the pressure that that puts on them for um, the possibility for university admission, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. possibility for... Um, you know, choosing a, a, a career track that is more of interest to them and uh, alignment with their That's desires. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that sorting happens right from the, the very beginning. And we see it play out um, at the, the highest levels uh, in the uh, public schools here in New York City and mm -hmm. around the, the country, around mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. I, I think mean, that's such a good point, Brian, because what we're really talking about is privilege. That's right. right? And, right. and that went, because I have some of these prerequisite skills, because I have some of this prior knowledge, I do well on what's considered to be an objective measurement. And that affirms my place and that affirms my position. And I work hard and I do well and I work hard and I do well mm -hmm. and I work hard and I do well. And I think I'm, and I feel like I'm earning each of the opportunities that I receive. Other people, though, are working hard and not doing well. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they don't have as much to offer necessarily, but it's often because they didn't begin with some of those prereq that some of the prior knowledge, some of that context. And so what happens is you have one group, as you say, you know, one group is getting lifted by the tide and the other group is getting <laughs> getting crushed by the wave uh, when, it, when it comes down. Right. And and it can be hard to acknowledge that privilege when it's happening to you, when you're the recipient of it. Um, and it doesn't mean people aren't aren't working hard and, and earning things. It just means that different people are afforded different opportunities. Right. And it's not always based on an objective measurement. Right. Yeah. I, oh, no, I was going to say, even if you look in, in New York City, right, and... and Again, I, I've just gone through my second round of college applications. Mm -hmm. my, my youngest is going into college in the fall. Mm -hmm. And so once again, we've been like SAT prep, right? Mm -hmm. So he's at a school that offers SAT prep. He comes from a middle school in Harlem that has a connection to a, um, a test prep where the Princeton Review people do mm. the test prep, and I paid $50 for, for the whole thing, yeah. for like five, seven months of, wow. of prep every Saturday. And then I wonder, like, what does it look like for kids um, at some of the schools that I work and mm -hmm. what their, yeah. their, their test prep look like? What, what does their SAT and their ACT prep look like when their parents can't afford tutoring, when they can't afford um, a tutor to come to their mm -hmm. home to do the prep? Who's, yeah. who's prepping them? Um, and so it's really hard for me to navigate that spaces when people start talking about testing mm -hmm. and, you know, it's everybody gets the same chance. No, they don't because they don't have the same privilege. Yeah. Um, and so I think, Marcel, what you said goes into our next section beautifully. Um, but before job, doing... <laughs> I was like, oops. <laughs> <laughs> but before doing that, I want to try to put a tidy bow on this oh. complex issue. Um, and so when I have this conversation with people, I use a simplistic metaphor. 
Um, imagine you have people racing in a 40-yard dash. Hmm. Except some people start 20 yards back of the start line. Hmm. Some people of their own talent, of their own volition, will be able to surpass those who actually start at the start line. Hmm. Others will struggle to get there. And so it's hard to blame someone who's starting 20 yards from behind for not finishing before the other mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. But it also creates this narrative that Brian talked about at the beginning of bootstrapping yourself, mm-hmm. right? Pulling mm-hmm. yourself up because there are people that are able to do that. Yet that kind of exception to the narrative becomes the only narrative that's mm-hmm. told. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of perpetuates this meritocracy. So I, I hope that's helpful to think about that metaphor mm-hmm. in terms of um, how testing works. The, the next part um, that I, I think is really helpful to talk about is at the teacher level, how do teachers make um, the standardized test, the environment that goes around them, the results from them better and worse? Um, and I kind of have <laughs> a lot to say on what makes them worse, so maybe I can uh, say some of that and you guys can spit back and then also talk about what makes things better. Um, so problems that I see teachers having is that they rely too much on a standardized test for determining um, what classes students should take when they're recommending um, classes. And so Brian talked about tracking on a district level. Mm. There's often tracking within schools. And the problem with this tracking is that low track classes are typically characterized by an exclusive focus on basic skills, low expectations, and often the newest or least qualified teachers. Mm. So you're taking the kids who have the greatest needs, you're saying we're going to put you in this class that actually has a smaller curriculum with someone who's less qualified to teach, and we're going to hope for the best, right? And so teachers can combat this by saying, hey, you know what, let's not just take the standardized test. Let's think about GPA. Let's think about growth over the course of the year. Um, And if you really have a lot of power at your school, there's actually some research out there that shows giving everyone an accelerated curriculum helps all students. Um, Another problem that I see teachers making is reading into test um, uses that they are not designed for. So at a school that I worked at, one of these problems was we would use a college entrance exam to determine the quote-unquote proficiency of 11th grade students starting this test in the first semester. Well, if we're pigeonholed to the K-12 markers of educational readiness, then a first semester 11th grader wouldn't necessarily be quote-unquote proficient on a college entrance exam. And so determining a student's academic readiness based on that, there's a disconnect that creates problems for that student. Um, And then the final thing that I think is really harmful that teachers can do is get a standardized test result back, say, oh my, my students didn't do well, instead of saying, wait, what was on this test? Have my students been taught these things? Because distilling what students have been taught and not necessarily done well on versus what students haven't been taught and what they haven't done well on can be really enlightening for teachers in their practice in terms of what they need to teach and how they need to teach it and to truly give a roundabout assessment for students. Those are some of my critiques. I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that or you want to focus on some of the things that teachers do can do to make um, handling the standardized test better. I think from my perspective, I just really want to acknowledge that teachers can get 
just as demoralized as their mm. students can. Yeah. And they can begin to feel just as sort of like overwhelmed and, and dip into a sense of powerlessness um, just as easily as their kids can because you constantly have these numbers coming at you that are seemingly evaluating you but have very little to do with what you actually can do uh, and what you actually do do on an every single day basis. And it can be really difficult because after all this work and all this energy goes into the day of the test and then a month later or you know a few days later you get a little number. And that's all you see for months mm -hmm. is a little number in a box. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't t actually tell you very much. Yeah. So Matt, I really agree with you that if teachers can begin to use the, the, the exams, whether their students are doing well or whether their students are struggling, mm -hmm. they can go just a few steps further beyond that little number in a box that comes to them and look at the exam and try to get samples of their student work to try to better understand how their students performed and what they struggled with, it's going to be really informative to your own practice. And it's going to give those individual students who are still struggling on the exam an opportunity to strategically improve their practice rather than just like, well, I guess I'll try to take it again, but mm -hmm. what's the point? Because mm -hmm. I know I'm going to fail. Mm -hmm. That mentality is really hard to overcome. And as teachers, one of the things that we can do is actively work on that social emotional piece mm -hmm. um, as well as the academic piece. Mm -hmm. I encourage teachers often to, to think about what information they do get from the on test the and mm -hmm. to not leap ahead or as, as, some people say, don't don't scale that ladder of inference just yet mm. when it comes to mm. test results. Um, as Roberta mentioned, the, the the numbers we get back essentially tell us very little. Um, I almost say nothing there, but they tell us something. Um, the question is, what do uh, sort of more comprehensive reporting on performance on a test? What do they tell us? Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, uh, the 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 implication or the, the inference that people make is didn't pass test or didn't do well on test equals not quite so intelligent or mm. not quite so able. Mm. Um, yep. uh, instead, um, I would encourage teachers, and, and I see many, many teachers doing this, to dig into the test itself, the mm -hmm. test document. What are these questions? What are they asking? What are you asking the students mm -hmm. to do? Then correlate the test document itself, the task, with student responses mm -hmm. um, and then gather that up as low inference information to say what happened what do we mm -hmm. actually know at mm -hmm. the end of this test and often the answer is again not very much yeah. um, and then to the extent that that can help teachers inform their instruction um, plan curriculum plan instruction that uh, specifically uh, attempts to address student areas for growth then tests can be useful at pieces of yeah. formative assessment. Mm -hmm. um, but when they get uh, sort of wielded like a cudgel in this sort of summative high-stakes sort of way, mm -hmm. um, it's very easy to ascribe uh, qualities or characteristics to students who perform a certain way on these tests. Mm -hmm. um, teachers who can really get in there and do like nitty-gritty uh, sort of analysis on the test document itself and student responses to mm -hmm. individual tasks, mm -hmm. then they can start to gather up some more useful information. I, I worked with a, um, a school two, three years ago, I forget how long ago, um, where I worked particularly with an English language arts whole team, um, and we did a whole cycle of inquiry looking at the 10th grade regions for, um, for ELA. Um, I think it's really one of my success stories and one of the school success stories 
in the sense that they had like a 37% pass rate the one year and then it jumped to like 73 or 74, I forget, the next year. But what happened was that we literally went through every single response for every single student, right? Mm -hmm. And And then pulled out like the, what was the top question that, all of the kids struggled with what was the mm-hmm. second one and then looking at them so minutely in terms of what do the kids need to know for this question mm-hmm. and what do they need to do for this question right and so being able to look particularly at what is the skill set that they need to have beforehand and then what do they need to actually do to answer it and then mimicking classroom practice practice and questions and exit slips and homework assignments to all meld together so that we are doing test prep as well as information mm-hmm. teaching in our classes, right? Um, and imparting knowledge and, and, and like bringing a critical aspect to it. It was highly successful. It was a smaller school and so they saw this leap, right? And yeah. so they, they by, by practice now, they keep going back to, to look at it. But it takes, it takes time and yeah. effort yeah. and energy and commitment that staffs don't necessarily get. And at that particular school, they were given... In built into the time frame at school to mm-hmm. work on this, right? And so when yeah. when the when the conditions are, are set so that the that the teachers are set up for success, that helps. So we're getting a little low on time. We've had a wide ranging discussion um, about standardized testing and the impact that it has on students. But as we close this up, does anyone have any final thoughts or things that they would like to add that maybe has not been part of the conversation yet? <laughs> <laughs> Brian looks like he has something well, I happening do, I, I, in his head. I, I do have something I'd like to say, but I, 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 it's, I don't want to you know, go back on comments that we've made in, in previous podcasts, but uh, this idea that um, uh, I, I think it's important that students and teachers know that um, like what testing is and what testing isn't. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I mean, there's a, there's a narrative that's out there about testing that it, it, it's an accurate measurement mm-hmm. and that it's fair mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it, it, it will um, give you some indication of mm-hmm. a, a student's merit or ability or mm-hmm. worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, tr- just not true. It's just not true. It's, <laughs> it's a lie. The bottom, the bottom line is this is just not true. So if we can start having among teachers and among students, especially among students, mm-hmm. conversations about what testing is and what testing isn't, mm-hmm. what testing can do and what it can't do, um, what its usefulness is, and then uh, how it can al- ultimately harm people. Mm-hmm. If we can have this conversation in an honest way, we can start to um, you know, level the playing field. We can start to get everybody, at, level the playing field at least in terms of how the, uh, of tests themselves. Yeah. The leveling of the overall playing field is a much larger, longer, more involved project um, that, um, you know, I can only hope is, uh, is, is, is underway um, and that we're contributing in some small way too. But in terms of the tests as they're currently constituted, um, we just need to be honest with ourselves as teachers and honest with our students about what they do and what they don't do um, and um, what it takes to be successful at these particular measures that we currently have little control mm. over influencing. That said, the other side is what we can do is to try to influence the political conversation about what tests are and what tests aren't what they can do and what they can't do and that's the that's a longer term project where we're trying to as Roberta said like just change the very nature of these tests Mm -hmm. Um, and you know we do need to assess students we do need to assess schools Mm -hmm. but 
what are we trying to measure and how are we going to get that information? That is a conversation that happens at the policy level. Um, And I think uh, teachers and uh, students and parents and other stakeholders need to start or need to amplify their voices when it comes to influencing things at the policy level. Mm. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. The, all the little caveats and gatekeepers that we have, all these tests that we put in the way of graduating from high school and then between high school and college, uh, all of those little moments we just culturally sort of blindly accept as real and right and good and meaningful and natural and, and objective. And mm-hmm. I think I just want to say, like, what can we do? We can start to question. Mm. <laughs> do I really need all of these skills that are tested on the SAT to demonstrate that I'm good and going to be good in college? Because maybe not. You know, when I looked at the English regents in New York State and started to really ask myself these questions, I was like, are we really going to say that you can't be a full citizen of the United States if you can't analyze the two short stories with a common theme and write about it in 60 minutes on the spot? Mm-hmm with quotes, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that people really care all that much. And I guess I just want us to engage in more rigorous questioning of the assessments, mm-hmm. to hold these assessments up to the light, to hold them to a higher standard, and to really recognize the real life impact that it has on thousands and thousands and thousands of kids every single year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Resist. Resist. Hashtag resist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And while we're resisting, like, what does, what do we do to help kids who are in the situation right now? How do we make it so that they at least have access psychologically to it, if not, you know, academically? Mm-hmm. If they can at least sit through doing the test without feeling that their lives are coming to an end or that it get, mm-hmm. gets them to the point where they have both psychological stress and physiological stress from that like what do we do what do we as teachers do what do we do as parents who do we speak to what do we talk to in terms of teacher unions like what what is the movement and like what is the political action really what does that look like yeah um i think teachers have to kind of live in the world of doublespeak in the sense that the test is not going to go away Mm. in the next year or two and you have an obligation to children so you have to find a way to make that work. Um, If you don't believe that these tests are valid and you want to change that, I think that's another persona that you have to have outside of school um, to be engaged in this political work because if you're not paying attention to the students' needs, one, what they need in the classroom, but two, the um, different tests and markers that they need to get their diploma to go to college to do these things, um, it's a disservice to kids in a greater for a greater cause, um, but I don't think as a teacher you can sacrifice the immediate for the greater cause when you're mm. working with children. So mm. I, I think that's not a fair place that a teacher teachers have to navigate, but I but I do think they do need to. Mm. Yeah. So we have as teachers this kind of uh, double um, or this 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 switching that we have to do. Help. We best, some of the best things we can do for students is to help them pass the test. Mm-hmm. At the same time, some of the best things we can do for the community and mm-hmm. the, the the country is to help change the tests. Right. right. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of Let's our <laughs> of our podcast today. So thank you for joining it's a us. Light and lively topic. <laughs> 
Remember to check out um, all the links related to uh, standardized testing on students in our show notes. You can find that on our website at cpet.tc.columbia.edu. And remember to subscribe, like, and or comment on this podcast. (laughs) On behalf of Marcel, Roberta, Brian, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in. Bye. 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 Bye